0: Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy, expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome to our time of study in God's Word. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast and today we're going to continue our series through the book of psalms looking today at psalm 20 and the faith of israel would you please join me now in prayer father we thank you that your word is true that it's trustworthy that it is enough for our life and for our godliness that we can trust you and lord as we open this great psalm today what we need to do is to trust you to to know that you are good and that you've sent forth christ your son to pay the penalty in our place and for our sin to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the lord jesus to to seat us as your people before the table of god not as enemies but now as friends not as traitors but as known by you as as loved by you as adopted by you as accepted by you and is loved by you and so lord I, I pray as we open your word now that you would use this time as you do as you promised in isaiah 55 that your word will not return without void that it is the living word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces the heart and the flesh of men, because you are the God who pierces the heart and the flesh of men. And so, Lord, I I pray for the help of your Spirit. As we open your word, may you illuminate it to us, help us to to know you more as you are revealed in in the written word of god the anchor the true north of our souls in jesus name i pray amen and amen well if you have your bibles go ahead and open them to psalm 20 psalm 20 it says this starting in verse 1 may the lord answer you in the day of trouble May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard you with favor and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and then the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions now i know that the lord saves his anointed he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand some trust in chariots and some in horses but we trust in the name of the lord our god they collapse and fall but we rise and stand upright O lord save the king may he answer when we call this is the reading of god's precious word and I begin today with a question how were people saved in the Old Testament Psalm 20 fills out our picture of Israel's faith in in the Messiah centuries before the Lord Jesus was born. And to explore this question from this chapter of Psalm 20 we're going to start by looking at the big picture looking at faith in the Messiah in the Old Testament as a whole and then we'll narrow or focus to look at psalm 20 as a whole and after we build this picture we will walk through the details of psalm 20 to see what this psalm teaches us about the person and the work of christ and so again i begin by asking the question that i started with how were people saved in the old testament and the answer is, God's people have always been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament contains the law of Moses, but it does not teach that we are saved by law-keeping. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, the, the epistle of Hebrews, which shows how Christ is better than everything and how he's sufficient over everything in Hebrews eleven six. The writer of Hebrews says this, without faith is it impossible to please Him. See, God's people have always been saved by God by trusting in Him alone. Now we need to ask the question, what did people in the Old Testament know and believe? More specifically, we need to ask the question, what do they know about Christ? Now... There's actually a whole field of theological study on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And trust me, we can only scratch the surface in our time together today. But there are a number of places in the New Testament that tell us what the Old Testament believers believed. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you. Through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. God's people knew that the Messiah would suffer and be glorified. The prediction of Christ's suffering began in Genesis 3.15, what is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. God gave Adam and Eve a ray of hope after sin entered the world. And speaking to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see here that the first word of Christ's suffering, the serpent would bruise his heel. The predictions of Christ's suffering flow throughout the whole of the story of the Old Testament in various ways. In Isaiah 53, we, we come to see the suffering servant. The prediction of Christ's glory also begins here. He would triumph by bruising the head of the serpent. And these predictions of his victory grow throughout the Old Testament. There's another question that we need to ask. What didn't the Old Testament believers know? Well, according to the Apostle Peter, in the verse that we just read from, from uh, uh, First Peter, they did not know who the Christ would be or when he would come. They knew... Well, what would happen to him because they studied the scriptures. They knew the Bible, right? That's why Jesus said over and over again in the Gospels, it is written. Because they knew it was in the Bible. What they didn't understand is they didn't understand the spirit, the intent, the goal, how it would find its apex in Christ. They did not know his name, his person, or the timing of God's plan. And so the big message of the New Testament is that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. He was born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered, he died, and he rose under Pontius Pilate, and he is soon returning. But we need to ask another question. Was it just Peter that, that talked about this? What about Paul? What did Paul have to say about this? In 2 Peter three fourteen and 15, Paul also teaches that the Old Testament teaches faith in Christ. Timothy learned the the Old Testament scriptures from his Jewish mother and grandmother, and Paul says to him, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures that Timothy had from infancy are the books of the Old Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written. But according to Paul, the Old Testament teaches salvation by faith. And the object of this Old Testament faith is found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Well, we know from reading Luke 24 that Jesus taught many times about what he would do, what he would suffer. He teaches that the Old Testament taught about his own suffering and glory as the Christ. Luke 24 records some of Jesus' last words with his disciples. Luke 24, 44-47 says this, And then he said "And These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then they opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem." The Law and the Prophets are the two main sections of the Old Testament, and grammatically, Jesus' words here they include the Psalms as part of the Prophets. According to Jesus, each part of the Old Testament scriptures testified to his suffering, his death, and his glory. The first time faith is mentioned in the Bible, it is centered on the Messiah, the Christ. God had promised Abram that he would bless all the nations of the world through him and his descendant or seed in Genesis 12, 1-3, and 13-16 of Genesis. But Abram was childless. It seemed like god could not keep his promise and so he says this god does in genesis 15 1 through 6 after these things the word of the lord came to abram in a vision fear not abram i am your shield your reward shall be very great but abram said oh lord god what will you give me for i continue childless in the air of my house is Eliezer of damascus And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see, this is one of the landmarks of the Old Testament. A text that is taproot for salvation by faith. Abram was declared righteous on the basis of his faith. Abraham, Abram's faith looked forward to the Messiah. His one offspring, or his seed, would become as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and all the nations will be blessed through him. Walter Kaiser makes this comment on Genesis 15, 6, saying this, And what Abraham placed his faith in was the content of the promise made originally in Genesis uh, 12, 2-3, which focused on the seed or the Messiah who was to come. And as a result, God added this up and credited this belief to Abraham's account as one who was righteous. Abraham's faith is the same as the justifying faith as believers in the New Testament. This Old Testament faith may may not possess full understanding of the details of the redemptive work and the atoning sacrifice, and yet, in essence, it is trust in the Savior sent by God. And all of this helps us to put a picture together of what God's people believed before Jesus was born. The scriptures prophesied the suffering and the glory of the Messiah from the opening chapters of Genesis on. And yet the details became progressively clear. Of course, as they read, as they studied the scriptures, the Old Testament believers put their faith in the Messiah, the man God would raise up to defeat Satan and bless the nations of the world. Understanding this framework and the answer to the questions that we've explored helps us as we come now to Psalm 20. This psalm was given to the choir master to teach the people of God to hope in the Messiah. The heart of Psalm 20 is the confidence that God will save his anointed and give him victory, as verse 6 of Psalm 20 tells us. And we need to ask the question, who is this anointed king that we're going to look at in this chapter? And some think that this psalm was a worship liturgy before the kings of Israel, They went out to war, but the introduction doesn't give this background for this psalm. In the end, we don't know when or why it was written. This could have been used when a king went out to war, but there is no reason why it could not have been written as a prophecy of events far in the future. John Calvin concludes, The object, therefore, which David had expressly in view was to exhort all the children of God to cherish such a holy solicitude, about the kingdom of Christ as it would stir them up to continual prayer on its behalf. The book of Psalms itself gives us the context for reading and understanding Psalm 20. We always need to go back to the context to understand the meaning of of where we're going. What is the author aiming to do in this book of the Bible? Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction for the whole book of Psalms, and they set the stage for the for the Psalms that fall, Psalm 2 introduces us to Christ, the king God has anointed and set on his throne in heaven. God rescued him, and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. In a real sense, the book of Psalms is about this king, his kingdom, and his people that they belong to him. The promise of a king in Psalm 2 is the key for understanding the whole book of Psalms. When We read about a king in Psalm 20. We need to remember Psalm 2, and that we have this eternal king in mind. Psalm 20 also fits together closely with the immediate context of the psalms that come right before it. The psalm has a number of verbal links with Psalm 18, and we might reckon that the psalms have almost been juxtaposed so as to suggest that Psalm 18 offers the testimony the blessings of Psalm 20 have come about, or that Psalm 20 promises that God will do again what Psalm 18 testifies to. In Psalm 18.6, the king calls to God in his trouble, and his distress. In Psalm 20, the people pray for this king in his day of trouble in verse 1. In both Psalms, God answers the king from heaven. He supports him. He saves him. And so Psalm 20 is looking at the victory of Psalm 18 from a different angle, we can say. In Psalm 20, we hear the voice of the people praying for the king and trusting in the king. The introduction to this psalm tells us that it is a psalm of David. The preposition of has a range of meanings. In Hebrew, it can mean that this psalm is about David. It's written for David. It was written to David. It was written by David. And when Jesus quoted Psalm 110 in the temple in Matthew 22, 43 through 45, he understood the phrase of David to mean written by David. And following Jesus' example, it means best to assume that when his psalm is introduced by the words of David, it means David wrote it unless there's good reason to think otherwise. And if David wrote Psalm 20, then he is writing about another king, his descendant Christ Jesus the Messiah. In fact, he mentions this coming king in Psalm 1850, which says, great salvation he brings to his king. And so steadfast love was anointed to David and his offspring forever. And now here in Psalm 20, he's speaking to this other king, saying in, in Psalm 20, verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. David is writing here about none other Than the person and the work of Christ. King David and all the people should trust in the Lord. And so David prays for Christ, his great son, who will be born 1,000 years later. David hopes in Christ. In verse 6, now I know that I know that the Lord saves his anointed. In verse 9, tells us that David submits to Christ, saying, This, O Lord, save the king, may he answer us when he calls. God will save the king, and the king in turn will answer the people of God. With that word we, King David includes himself with all the rest of the people, saying that he will call on this greater king. A king does not appeal to someone lesser than himself. He commands them to do what he wants. A king only appeals to someone greater, a greater king. And that's what, with the word we, David includes himself with the people who call on this king. David recognized that his offspring would be greater than he. And this is the point that Jesus made when he quoted Psalm 110 in the temple. The beginning of Psalm 110 reads this way, "A Psalm of David the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. Psalm 110.1 David himself calls the Messiah my Lord, submitting to him and recognizing his superior greatness. And so at the heart of the Old Testament, great King David put his trust in the greater King. And in Psalm 20, David submits to Christ and he looks forward to his greater kingdom. We have seen that the Old Testament believers were saved by faith in Christ alone. We have looked at faith in Christ in Psalm 20 as a whole. And this brings us to the last question. What do we learn more specifically about the Messiah in Psalm 20? And based on Psalm 20, what did God's people know about Christ before he was born? How did Psalm 20 fill out what we know about Jesus ourselves? Psalm 20 is the people's prayer for their king, strictly speaking. The people are speaking to the king, not to God. And so as a prayer, it is an indirect prayer. The people are telling the anointed king what They want to know God, want God to do for him. And it might seem strange to think about praying for Christ. After all, Jesus is our high priest who prays for us. But Jesus was a human being like we are, to be sure he was the God man. And as a man, he came to walk the hardest path, the hardest road that any man ever walked. You can be sure that Mary prayed for him when he was a baby, and for a thousand years before he was born, faithful Jews prayed for him when they sang this psalm. Psalm twenty-one through three says, and it starts with a prayer for the king's protection. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the the God of Jacob protect you, and may He send help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And may He remember all your sufferings and regard you with favor. With favor, your burnt sacrifices, Salah. The Messiah would have a hard and a troubled life, we know. And as the people prayed for Christ with the words of the Psalm, they would have learned that the coming King would be pressed so hard that he would need God to intervene and send help from heaven. You see, the the Messiah of the Psalms is a suffering Messiah. We know from reading the Gospels that Jesus' life was full of hardship. He was a refugee. His parents fled to Egypt shortly after he was born. In fact, the UN in the the past few years announced that more than a million refugees fled Syria in the months and years. In recent years, you see pictures of families who have lost everything. They've left home. Now think of Christ. This was the pattern of his life. Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And by the way, Psalm 20 tells us how Jesus would respond to this trouble by turning to God. Not away from God, but turning to God. And when the people say, may the Lord answer you, in verse 1, this means that Christ called out for the help of God. Jesus was known to be a man of prayer. We see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus went and he spent time alone in prayer. He rose early to pray. He prayed throughout the night on occasion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. And although Jesus was alone at that moment, the prayers of the God's people had come up to the Father for centuries on behalf, on his behalf in the words of Psalm 20. Andrew Barnard put it this way. This psalm is is the prayer which the church might be supposedly uh, supposed offering up had all the redeemed stood by the cross or in Gethsemane in full consciousness of what he was doing there. Messiah, in reading these words, would know that he had, had elsewhere the sympathy he longed for when he said to the three disciples, "Tarry you here and watch with me. And yet Peter, James, and John fell asleep in the garden, but millions of Old Testament believers had already prayed for him, In the words of Psalm 20, asking God to hear his agonized prayers and to respond. Psalm 20 continues with the confidence and the joy that God's people are to have in the Messiah. In Psalm 20, 4-5, he says, May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God set-up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Why would, why would the people celebrate when, when God saved their anointed king? You see, the king represents the people and their life is bound up in this. If a, if a king wins a great battle, the nation has won a great battle. If the king loses, the nation is defeated. And so by rescuing the king, God's rescuing and he's blessing his people as a whole. Psalm 20 taught men and women in the Old Testament times that, that their lives were bound up in the life of the Messiah. He would be their representative. His victory would be their victory. His salvation would be their joy, according to Psalm 20, verse 5. And this was fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. And when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death, he said in John 16, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. After the resurrection, Luke uh, twenty four fifty two tells us that their hearts were filled with joy. And everyone who comes to Christ finds joy, inexpressible joy, is at the heart of our salvation. We sing for joy because God saved our King and we are saved because of Him. And So the bond of love between the Messiah and His people is so close that they trust Him completely. We're not to trust our leaders. Our system of the government in the United States is set up with checks and balances to keep our leaders under control. After all, Lord Acton, the British historian said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. History has proved this again and again and again, and it's being proved in our own day as well. But this Messiah is a leader we can trust. The people give the the king a blank check, asking God to fulfill all your plans, fulfill all your petitions in verses 4 and 5. What kind of man is he if every plan and every purpose of his heart can be trusted? He is a good man. He is a perfect man. He is a sinless man. He is a godly man. He is God become man. He is the Lord, our God, our Savior. Dear Christian, Jesus' plans and his thoughts for you are nothing but good all the time. He thinks about you constantly. He prays for you in heaven. The Bible says in Romans eight thirty four that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And so you can trust the Lord. You can rest and you can relax. Your king has your best in mind, even in the hard days, even in the troubling days. The worst that you will experience in the here and now is the here and now, because you have a king whose kingdom will never end. It's incorruptible. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 26, that he goes ahead and he prepares a place for you. What greater joy. He goes ahead of you. He prepares a place for you. He prepares a home for you. Dear Christian, your hard days are the worst that you will ever experience ever your home is not here and yet we live between the times we live between the times and these times Jesus said in in John 16:33 in this world you will have trouble we're going to have difficulty we're going to have hardship we're going to have challenging days we're going to have hard circumstances that's why 1 Peter 5:7 tells us to cast our anxiety upon the Lord. In Philippians 4, in the context of a, of a missive, of a whole group of commands, Paul says this in verse 6 through 8, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And by the way, even in the context of that, He's, he's promising, in verse 2 of Philippians 4, he's promising joy in the Lord. And because, in verse 13, in the sufficiency of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? It's because of the joy that Christ gives. That's why we can face today. That's why we can face tomorrow. That's why we can face every day that we're alive with the help of God's grace, with the indwelling presence of the, God, of the Holy Spirit as Christians, we have God's help. We are God's children if we have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're adopted. We're friends of God. We're no longer rebels of God. We belong to Christ. Do you belong to Christ? Have you put your faith, your personal trust and faith, have you turned and repented of your sin and put your faith and your hope in Christ, or are you still lost and dead in your trespasses and sins? If so, I plead with you today to put your faith, to put your hope, not in yourself, but in Christ alone. Novelist Anne Tatlock tells a story. There was a rabbi who lived in Poland a long time ago, I think hundreds of years ago, and One day, he was out with his students having a picnic or something up on a big hill that overlooked the town. And while they were there, a bunch of people came riding into town and people who hated the Jews and started killing everyone, even the woman and the children. And here was a rabbi and his students looking down from the hill and seeing it all happen. Well, of course, they were horrified. And the rabbi said, if only I were God. One of his students said, if you were God, what would you do differently? And the rabbi said, if I were God. I wouldn't do anything differently. If I were God, I would understand. And someday when we're with God, we will understand what his plans for us were. In the meantime, we can trust Jesus. He is sufficient for our life and our godliness because he has revealed his plan for us to know him, to grow in him. And he's provided the means of his word and his spirit and the help of his people And the preaching of the word from our local churches, he's given us resource after resource after resource that can help us to that end. And as Jesus prays for us, we can say with Psalm 20, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions in verse 5. There has never been a, a sliver of a second when Jesus wanted anything but the best for us. And since he is God, he is able to work all things for our good and for his glory in our lives. That is tremendously, tremendously encouraging. Think about that for a minute. The king of glory who who came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty in your place and for your sin to be buried and rise again and who is soon returning. He is working all things, all things for his good. For you. For you who belong to Christ. In fact, that's what Romans eight twenty-eight through 29 is all about. He's conforming us into the image of His Son. And what is the Spirit aiming to do? He's aiming to take the fruits of the Spirit in our life and, and to massage them deeper into through the circumstances, through the trials, through the situations, through the circumstances of our lives so that Love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control and on and on and on will be manifest more in our life so that we will, we will adorn him more and more, that we would put off evermore, put to death our sin so that Christ may be put on display and so that we might represent Christ in all of life. You see, it matters not only that, that you're a Christian, that you're saved by Christ and for Christ and for the glory of his name, and that you are a disciple, a true disciple of Christ, but it matters that your life is ever conforming into the image and the likeness of Christ. We too often, in the church today, we too often cheapen obedience. that We too often soften the blow of gospel obedience. And yet Jesus does no such thing. You look at the gospels, Jesus he clearly points people to himself. They follow him or they go away. Jesus to his disciples in the upper room discourse in John 14:15 tells us what he expects. He expects obedience. Obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who understood obedience. He gave his life for the glory of Christ during the reign of the Nazis. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He talked about cheap grace versus costly grace. And it's a message that we need to hear today in the church. At the cost of the king of glory who came into our time came into our space fully god fully man he was born of a virgin to pay the penalty that you and i justly deserve he was buried and he rose again he's the sinless substitute that we need he's the only savior who who can save and yet do we believe that do you live by that reality Uh, You think of a man like Martin Luther, when Luther discovered in the Reformation the the doctrine of justification, he said it was the the main hinge on which the Christian faith revolves. It's the chief article, Calvin would write, on which the Christian faith hinges. And he's not wrong. We need the righteousness of God in Christ alone, and it, it transformed Luther's life. Now remember, this this was a time of during Luther's life, in the life of the church, where the gospel was corrupt. People were selling indulgences for the salvation of people, and, and that is no gospel at all. Make no mistake about it. It's no gospel. The gospel is Christ's death in our place and for our sin. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. There should be no dispute about that. The gospel is not about selling ourselves and giving gold and then somehow confessing our sin to some priest. Our need is to confess our sin and our neediness to the only Savior to the only King, to the only Lord of glory, who alone, through His life and death and resurrection, can save. That's why. That's why Paul says that that we have a mediator between God and man in First 1 Timothy 1.15. and His name is Christ Jesus. That's good news. We do not need indulgences. We do not need a, our merits. We do not need our performance. What God wants is our personal trust and our personal faith. And for us to place our faith and our trust in his person and in his work. And to turn from, and turn from our sins and to trust in the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. This message, this gospel that Luther really rediscovered by reading and studying the scripture, it transformed the world. It's revolutionized the world. Not only in Luther's time, it transformed a Roman culture, it's transformed civilizations. But even more than transforming whole people groups and civilizations. It transforms people's lives. It's transformed my life. But it's not only, we need to say, it's not only brought me into me who was once dead in my trespasses and sins. It made me live together with Christ, but it's given me a hunger. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, it's given me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a desire to become more like Christ. It doesn't just cheapen the, the glory of Christ and His death. What real obedience does is it, it actually highlights the beauty of that sacrifice. As we look to and as we trust Christ, and as we prize Him as our, the, the delight of our soul, That's what Jesus was after with the disciples when he was teaching them. Teaching them in the upper room discourse these lessons about what life was like in the kingdom. He was telling them, this is what it means to be a child of God. This is what it means to walk with me. Sally, today... The indictment of Bonhoeffer is correct. We have cheapened grace, or what Bonhoeffer would call the costly grace of God. And we must repent. We must repent. We must not just say, you know what, it's enough just to say, I'm sorry for my sin. But that's false repentance, friend. You must plead with God to give you real repentance. Because real repentance is not just sorrow for your sin. It's not just seeing the horror of it. It's turning away from it. And trusting not in your own self. Not just saying that it's, you know, I'm sorry for the sin that I committed. It's turning away from it and being transformed in all of life. It's as Colossians 3 says, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And this is the work of what we call progressive sanctification. This is the work of becoming like your Savior and your King who loves you. There's so much to say about that, but we need to wrap up this message. Now, Psalm 20 ends with David's great confidence in the, God's plans for his son, the great king who was to come. Psalm 20, verse 6 through 9 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust, yeah, in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh, Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. As a prophet, David looks forward with the eyes of faith to see the day when God would save his Christ. Did he understand the details of the Messiah's life? Did he know when he would come? Did he even know his name? He didn't even know any of these things, but he did know that God would raise up one of his descendants to be the Messiah and to sit on his throne. He knew that this king would suffer and that that God would rescue him. He prayed for his great son. He hoped in his great son. He trusted his great son. He submitted to his great son. Now today we know his name and we know why he came. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but God raised him from the dead as king and lord. And the New Testament fills out the picture of his life. But the question is today, do you trust Christ Do you believe that God's people have always been saved by faith in the person and the work of Christ you must If you have not put your faith and your trust in Christ for the for your forgiveness of sins Because this is what God's people have always done They have always turned from their sin To the only Savior who alone can save. Dear friends, we have to be so clear about this today. Because if you look at the statistics that are out there, people today do not believe that Jesus was God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He came under the sentence of death as the only Savior. And the way is exclusive and the way is restricted only by believing in him. You cannot be saved through mysticism. You cannot be saved through yoga. You cannot be saved through the Enneagram. You cannot be saved through some teacher. You cannot be saved through me. I cannot save you. You cannot be saved through Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or Locke or any political philosophy or religious philosophy. It's the only one who can save you is the one who came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty in your place and for your sin and to be buried and to rise again from the dead. And that's the king of glory. Man, we, could, we could be here for another hour. He is, he is beautiful. He is lovely. He is glorious. He is worthy of all of our adoration. He's worthy of our worship. And so I just ask you, do you prize Christ above all? Are you being, trans- dear Christian, are you being transformed by Christ into greater Christ likeness, into greater godliness? Are you displaying more of the fruits of the Spirit in your life, even, even the tiniest of tiny slivers? Are you enjoying the privilege that is yours of being in Christ and being known by Christ and in communion with Christ? And where you're failing, may the Lord, by his Spirit, bring conviction of sin. And may you hope more in Christ. May you do, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that we have a a sinless Savior who paid the penalty for us in our place for our sin, and that you were buried, and that you rose again from the dead, and that even now you are the mediator of the new covenant, You are our high priest, our king, and we love you, Lord. And we know that you are soon returning. So, Lord, give us us eyes and ears to love, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, the, the appearing of our Savior and King, Jesus. And give us as we live between the times, give us a boldness for the glory of Christ. Help us to prize our, our growth in godliness, as, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, that, that, and we're commanded as your people to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Help us. Help us to treasure our union with Christ. Help us to treasure our communion with christ help us to treasure lord the privilege of our adoption the privilege of our justification the privilege of our life with you and help us to not cheapen the grace of god and lord may you open our eyes and and lead us to repentance where we have cheapened your grace where we have succumbed to temptation where we have committed sins of the tongue where we have committed sins with our eyes, where well, we have loved the pri- our own pride, our own flesh, more than prizing and honoring and glorifying the King of glory, Lord, lead us to repentance. Help us to prize you more. Help us to glory in this King and help us by Your the grace of God through the word of God and through the means that you have appointed to treasure you more, to honor you in all of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.